0: Welcome to Rants About Humanity, a podcast where we interview guest experts with passionate opinions about important topics that don't get enough attention. Raw, unfiltered, thought-provoking perspectives with no censorship. With your host, Philip Van Houta. Welcome everyone to the Rants About Humanity podcast. Today I have Sam Brocken as a guest. Sam Broken is a public health expert with a background in global health and viral transmissions. I mean, the research, not in real life. He's also a lecturer and head of research in healthcare at different university colleges. Welcome on the podcast, Sam. You're one of the critical voices about everything that's going on with the lockdown and the COVID measures.
1: Well, first of all, I think uh, the, the main issue here is that we are facing a narrative that has been going on since the beginning of the crisis, a, a, a narrative that has been the stronghold of in at least in Belgium, for about with about five experts who are basically trying to set this narrative of fear. Since a year, we're trying with a team of about 20 people to uh, mm. engage against this paradigm that has been launched. That's a fear-based paradigm, in our opinion. And what I was trying to do, as other colleagues of mine also tried to do, was just to get the debate going. Mm-hmm you know and trying to interfere in what is going on now and trying to put forward some alternatives you know we had to basically shut up i think this has to do with the fact that our our colleges universities have a l- quite a lot of political pressure so they want to keep the current narrative going so then there is an internal pressure within the institute in academic institutes that basically forces us to take a step back and, and basically put our, hands, uh, our, our heads in the sand and bury, bury ourselves. And it's quite difficult, you know, because the academic institutes is one of the last resorts we still have in society. As we know that the, the president at, at this time has a difficulty as well to inform people in a correct manner. They are also pushed into, towards a, a narrative that's been set out by governments, politicians, Policy makers,
0: Students come to you because you're an authority in your field. You work hard to be an authority in your field. You had to publish things. You had to show your competency and your experience and your expertise. And now suddenly there seems to be a narrow way of presenting the expertise and what's allowed to be said. Well, that's actually what you do. I remember when I was studying at the University of Ghent, the slogan was dare to think. And the first thing to be able to think is to doubt and then exchange perspectives. But yeah. any time in history, when we see book burnings, when we see university professors being changed, that reminds me about a lot of things in the past with ideologies, with propaganda, that they were shutting down all the intellectual, moral institutions that could give a counterweight to certain perspectives that were following, let's say, the party ideology.
1: Yeah, indeed. we're. This is also something I put forward at uh, my uh, directors' in- in which I said, you know, we are the last men standing currently. So if we put our heads in the sand as well and bury ourselves as academical institutions, there is no one else uh, left to create a counterforce. So I basically said to them, you know, we're, we're reaching the end. We're reaching the end of the line now, and we're going mm-hmm. to cross the line. And if we cross the line, we don't know where we're heading. So we have to... Act and, and engage ourselves now, but it, it remains a, a very difficult position for them as well. It seems, and indeed, as you said, we try to inform our students and try to uh, build up a kind of critical thinking, scrutinizing evidence, thesis, antithesis, and coming towards a synthesis of what you. Uh, sh- that's what you should do in an academic environment. And today, only the thesis is still running around. There is no antithesis anymore and let's and certainly no synthesis. So nothing's left, you know? We're, we're stuck in a, in, in a paradigm.
0: Yep. I sometimes call it thesis. It's a test to potentially work for the university.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, well, it's true, you know? The, the, the word universitas is basically... We, we, we have to start doubting this, you know? Are we still... Universities, are we still progressing as a university as a basis of critical thinking, as a basis of really putting forward antithesis just to keep growing? You need this conflict of conflicting evidence to keep pushing research forward. And that's not what we're doing at the moment,
0: you know? That's the same thing that I realized when I was studying sociology, I had to memorize the big thinkers. But the big thinkers that I studied, they stepped outside of the mainstream narrative then. They pushed back, they had new insights, they questioned the way of thinking, they were visionaries. So those people that I study are so necessary because they became the people that I have to study. But when it comes to working with that material and using them as idols, as a way of thinking, that's like no, no 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 just memorize and just do the same thing which always seems like weird yeah
1: well that's what that's what we have to be very careful about because this this critical reflection is the basis of progression
0: why are so many boards of directors i'm talking about belgium but this must be also the case in other universities why are they so politicized why are that's a good question. Uh, it's also, it's it's been a kind of
1: historical fact, you know. It has been in universities. It, it, it all, always has been like that in universities. The first universities were basically created by politicians or Catholic priests or always people having some kind of an, a, a societal influence. So I don't think that's something new. Uh, the thing is now, more these days, it's We've, we've seemed to lost track. What I mean by that is universities and colleges had been freewheeling for the last 30 40 years, which was a good thing. Mm-hmm. We were growing, we found ourselves in a kind of transition period towards a new technology, tech, uh, to new, new uh, technologies the way we live today. Unfortunately, the COVID situation or crisis has basically ruined the last 30 years of progression we had. It set us back for 30 years. There is so much fear and influence, geopolitical influence as well, on a global scale that is dripping down towards all institutes all over the world. I think we have to be very careful that we, it's an appeal to all my colleagues, you know, step forward. You know, I had a call this week as well with two other professors from Belgian universities who totally agree with what mm-hmm. I'm saying and currently are using my case here in Belgium, where I was totally, let's say, squashed by the media. They use my case now in their uh, ethical reflection lessons they teach uh, university students. So I had a long talk with the both of them. They also confirm, you know, we follow your lead, you know, what you're saying might be the solution to get out of this covid crisis but we all fear our jobs you know so
0: that's the thing that i saw you were one of the brave people who was able and willing to go to the mainstream media to show another side and be critical of the measures and then i said like i wouldn't go there because often they commit like character assassination already said it like beforehand and then you were like if i would put it in percentage maybe of all the COVID critical people on the mainstream media in Belgium it's like 0.01% or 0.1% and then as soon as you were on like yeah we can't tolerate this and you know these uh, conspiracy thinkers and you know we shouldn't have any skeptics etc and you were like one counter voice against all the you know pro voices hearing them all the day so it was because also if you hear in your voice, it's like a bit exhausting and fatiguing to be standing up. And it's easy for people to stand behind your shield and you take the blows. But it's still not easy to be an Einzelganger or fighting against the tyrannical windmills like a donkey shot, you know?
1: Yeah, it's true. I, I'm the sixteen line now, so I'm not the first one. But in, indeed, we remain with a small group of people trying to push another narrative forward or another solution out of the crisis. But we all faced the same uh, guillotine, you know? We were all uh, smashed uh, by, the, by the media, mainstream media, and also by other colleagues who are the experts at, at will at uh, currently setting out the, the, the policies. So, and they don't seem to be, nobody's que- questioning the current uh, expertise that's uh, basically forming all the policies, you know? They, nobody's questioning the current experts. Nobody is, is, not even the media. So I saw it myself when I was on the television interview. It, it was everything I said went back to the experts and they were able to say, no, no, what he's telling is bullshit. But if I ask for proof from what they are tr- trying to uh, proclaim, then nobody asks their proof, you know, what everything they say is, is correct and everything,
0: well, yeah.
1: that's difficult, you know, you, you just don't get your foot between the door.
0: Yeah. So I graduated in journalism and then sociology. And in both of them, I see kind of the same tendency. Normally you have a hypothesis or you have a question. And then based on that question, you want to investigate, explore like what the possible ways of treating that problem or hypothesis is. But when I see some interviews on television, it's more like an interrogation. (laughs) there's already like an accusation like they're right they are wrong and they like defending a certain like narrative instead of going with a hypothesis or a question and then finding out different answers the same thing i sometimes see in studies especially on uh, in the human human uh, humanities that it's more about having a grievance feeling like a victim feeling offended having a certain ideology and then gathering evidence that supports that ideology instead of something that everybody journalists and researchers should do, like, I have a question, I'm curious about something, I want to explore different angles, I have a hypothesis, but let's throw it out there and find different variables to explain this so we find a solution. But in both things, journalism and science, increasingly, that's not there anymore.
1: No, and that's something fearful, you know, because if journalists can't take up their role anymore, which they don't at the moment, and let's be honest, they've been instructed as well to keep their mouth shut and to follow the lead of the government. Yeah. Uh, it's it's no big secret anymore. I had contact with a few journalists. I was I was asked to work with a journalist for a television program, and it was back in March 2020 for national television. I had contact with a guy for about six weeks. He called me every. Two days for two, three hours, and uh, he wanted information. I was working together with him to, for a new television program. Suddenly, all communication stopped. It was over, and I was like, where the hell did the guy disappear to? So I tried to call him, tried to mail him. He didn't reply anymore. After a week or two, I bumped into a colleague of him, and he said, yeah, well, uh, they decapitated him because he was in contact with you and now he's taking off of the corona the Corona research. He's not allowed to do any of this stuff anymore. So he was put aside on the news desk and put somewhere else. And also the, the television program that was in preparation, one week later, it, it should have appeared on, on screen, which it didn't. So they, they suddenly announced on television, yeah, the program is being delayed for another two weeks. So two weeks later the television program showed on uh, was aired and I was looking and everything we discussed for 6 weeks was taken out of the of the television program. So that was obvious to me that back then something was happening there was a force playing on top of the journalists who had to shut up as well. And in the meantime we're now we're March 2021 I had contact with several journalists and um, they also stated the same thing they, they they basically said to me yeah well we have been instructed by the government not to give voice to any critical thoughts because this might be a public health issue if it happens this might create chaos i even have two journalists now who recently told me they quit the job and they said, we can't bear it. Mm-hmm. We can't, we have to stop this because one of them was working for 11 years for one of the biggest national mm-hmm. newspapers and just said to me, it, I'm fed up with it. I can't stand it anymore. I'm not able to do my job anymore. So th- this is not a good situation. This means that there is a geopolitical force playing above our heads. And I even think it. it, it it's, Much more on an international level than on a local level, because the local governments basically are following international guidelines. And those guidelines come from the international organizations like the WHO, IMF, uh, World Bank. And they all put stimuli forward to keep the ball rolling. So they are setting out the guidelines and local governments are basically just following those guidelines, blindfully, without questioning anything. So this is a very harmful situation.
0: Yeah, a lot of people are like, yeah, that's a conspiracy theory. But what's a conspiracy theory? That's people conspiring for a common purpose. If you take it to that level, you're, you're going to tell me that people don't conspire for a common purpose. You see right now that Facebook is following the WHO guidelines and then they're censoring. And just this week, when you we have this interview, it came out that they stopped the AstraZeneca vaccine in 10 countries. So what about all those people who have been censored for negative effects of the vaccine? And all those Facebook messages, it's been totally tested. You know, you can't question it. And then suddenly now there are questions. What happens then? You can re- retroactively unblock the accounts of all the people you've been blocked. You've been censored. You've been character assassinating. Like, what happens now? Also, there is a huge gambling stake right now for universities to bet on one path and one solution. What if it doesn't work? Or what in the long term they seem wrong? You kill the entire prestige and expertise and authority of professors and of the university.
1: Yeah, that's basically what I'm afraid of because we're, we're losing credibility in the academic wo- world. I'm not sure how we will fix this in the future because people are dependent on science to keep moving forward in, with society, within society. So people are starting to lose confidence in what's happening. This might cost us a lot of points, you know, <laughs> as academics or academical institutions.
0: How many dots are there, right? People can look this up themselves. And I'm just putting out things that people can like research. You had the simulation of a pandemic in October 18th in a hotel in New York by the World Economic Forum, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and the John Hopkins Institute. You can find it on YouTube. It was a simulation of a corona pandemic. Then you have the World Economic Forum that came together in Davos in January every year, where the chairman, Klaus Schwab, he already wrote wrote a book in in July, COVID-19, The Great Reset. The Great Reset is all about building back better, changing society, because COVID has shown that it's a unique opportunity and a window opportunity for changing every aspect of society. Then you have the World Health Organization, which if America has dropped out I think 25% is being sponsored by Bill Gates with the Gavi Alliance and with the Melinda Melinda Foundation. By the way, all these charities, you can look it up, charities between quotes. Some of these people had to like set it up to have tax advantages. You know, it's still like in their position, but they act like it's all charity. So there's a lot of things that you see that could like ask questions, but that leaves a lot to, in Dutch, it would be in English, it would be coincidence thinkers. How many coincidences does there be in terms of timing You can look up vaccination passport roadmap started in 2018 by the European Commission, planned in 2022. Well, we're perfectly on time with the planning. So how many planning coincidences, organizations working together, and especially people who benefit from the measures that are being taken, can't we question those things? Isn't it healthy to question certain things that are all planned and that people are involved? The president of uh, Belgium nominated as World youth global leader by Klaus Schwab from the World Economic Forum itself again. All these people on a globalist level with these big institutions getting together and deciding things with a small panel of experts. Yeah indeed it it raises
1: questions. I think there is no proof in in, in all these uh, intertwined Mm -hmm. networks. We can't really prove that there is a real push coming from, from the top but there is certain, there certainly is a correlation. You know you see things happening which are unexplainable on an academic level. I think, and that's my perception is we, we, we had the start of the COVID p- pandemic in, in the end of 2019. and for the first three, four months, we saw some kind of a public health, a realistic public health approach. you know there, mm-hmm. there was there, the, the WHO was still a bit on the background. Was mm-hmm. uh, evaluating on a correct basis. Was waiting for data. Wasn't into a fear paradigm. So this this isn't the first case we have in the last twenty years. It's the sixth one. Right? We had Nipah vir- virus, N H one H, uh, N five H one. What did we have? SARS, MERS. We we all. This it's is swine flu. New. Yeah, there's nothing new. You know, it's it's been the. So everybody was taking the right direction in the first three months. And then suddenly something changed. And we saw it in, on, on press and, and media coverage as well. The first blow came with the Ferguson projection, which mm-hmm. was uh, Professor Ferguson from the Imperial College stating that we would lose about 40 million people in the world. For Japan, I remember he it, it projected uh, 1.4 million deaths. Then they ended up with 7,800. Sweden was uh, projected to to have a fatality loss of 85,000 people and ending up with about 12,000. So that was the first scaremongering effect that came uh, uh, above the water. And at that point, WHO went in some kind of a cramp. So they basically ended up forcing governments to implement more severe measures. And that's something that changed back then in March, April 2020, the narrative changed totally, based, I think, for a a small part on the Ferguson projection. But what also happened during the same period was the fact that we saw much more influence coming from the IMF, World Bank, WHO. For instance, the IMF back then stated and, and published papers in which countries now could ask for a monetary funding from the IMF if they Im- enforced lockdowns. Mm-hmm. So every country, and certainly like Belgium, which has a very bad balance,
0: who <laughs> improve deficit.
1: balance, yeah, the deficit by just going to the IMF and stating, okay, we're going for a lockdown, so give us some free money. And that's what happened in a lot of countries. So I think you started seeing some geopolitical forces playing above our heads enforcing guidelines towards the local governments and i don't think all the go- the local governments are from at bad will they just mm-hmm. follow the guidelines and they think you know we have to cover our asses as well because otherwise we'll be dimin- uh, disseminated as politicians as well so i think the experts are doing basically the same they're they're following the narrative of the who because finally if, if it all seems to work out bad, which, which it starts to look like, the experts in the countries that have been pulled up out of the gutter, those were basically what we call the known television faces. They're also dependent on, on, on money, academical money coming quite often from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which isn't surprising. It has been like that for the last 20 years, 30 years. Since the 70s, we saw a switch in which governments said, you know, we can't keep investing in university research. So they opened up the doors for private investors. Since then, there is some kind of a gray zone. Now we see in the second wave in in the corona crisis that this gray zone is starting to become black. All these institutes that are funding universities since the 23rd years are currently in charge, you know, WHO, pharma industry, you name it. So this this is a very difficult balance, you know, at the moment. And I think that that's where, where the geopolitical forces are coming from. There is no biomedical reason to have all these vaccinations at the time. You know, we know now after one year of data, mm-hmm. we only have about an infection fatality rate of about 0.23, which basically is what, the who peer review, reviewed themselves and, and admits as the infection fatality rate we're already below that it's 0.22 21 if you know in a pandemic flu season we reach between 0.17 and 0.20 mm. we're basically not that far anymore from the from from the from a, a, a normal flu season concerning mortality
0: and the flu has disappeared
1: yeah, suddenly, miraculously, it disappeared.
0: I then hear that because of the measures, the flu has disappeared, but not COVID.
1: Yeah, yeah, indeed. Yeah, yeah. Very strange uh, reasoning, I know.
0: But what I don't understand is we had these projections from Neil Ferguson from Imperial College by a much contested person who was wrong so many times. We had these images of uh, Chinese people falling dead on the street, etc. These disaster scenarios like 3% fatality rate, etc. And what I found surprising is the less severe the crisis became and the lower the fatality rate was, the stricter the measures became. The more there was evidence of measures not working or barely working, let's do more of what's not working.
1: Yeah, but that's a self-fulfilling prophecy, of course. If the figures go down, you can say as a government, we acted. Correctly, this was a, this was a good thing. So let's keep focusing on these measure measures because, yeah, well, the infection rate is dropping. So that's just a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, it has been proven now in several studies, amongst which one of the University of Stanford by Ben David, which uh, basically uh, looked at the countries under lockdown and countries and compared them to countries without the lockdown in strict measures. And we all see that the fatality rate is much higher in the countries with lockdowns, paradoxically. So all the evidence that has been gathered in the last year basically states that the approaches in lockdown in strict measure countries are more fatal than just releasing everything, you know? So there is no proof at all for for the measures being taken at this time. We, We have, you know, if you have data, for more than a year, and you can conclude that it isn't working, why are we still keep going with these measures? You know, it's, it's incredible. Why are we still
0: going with these measures?
1: I don't know. I don't have a reasonable explanation. The only thing I can think of is more a psychological way of keeping people under a form of control, just to keep the focus on the vaccines as a way out, as a, as a way to bail out, as a way to freedom, a new path to freedom. That's what they're telling people, which is basically untrue as well, because looking at the evidence, it's quite obvious now that people under 70, only zero point zero point zero point zero five five percent of the people under 70 have a chance of dying.
0: Five out of 10,000 people.
1: Yeah, so there's basically no reason to have a mass vaccination. You know, if you want to impose vaccines, first of all, you can't expo- uh, impose them. I think it has to be a free, uh, choice, free will. But focus on those people that have underlying pathologies, comorbidities, and give them the opportunity to get a vaccine if they want to. But for the rest of the population, active, healthy population, there is no need for a vaccine because in between 80 and 98 percent, depending on the study you look at, of the people in the healthy uh, population won't even develop severe symptoms. Most of them will develop nothing and a small amount of them will develop some kind of flu-like symptoms so there is no reason to get all the vaccine vaccination campaigns going it costs billions of dollars it's a huge logistical problem as well and so i think the measures are are kept in charge just to keep leading people towards the vaccines but without any proof of the vaccines being efficient in in the young healthy population moreover there has been two studies being published in the last two weeks that already uh, state that the current vaccines are totally inefficient. And that's quite normal because the current vaccines have been built upon the stems of the genetic stems from seven, eight months ago. Now we have about 7,000 mutations, amongst which about 500 from from the British variant uh, only. So those old, Vaccines that are currently on the market aren't basically doing anything anymore. In between zero and some, stu- the other studies suggest about 36 to 50 percent efficiency rate. So they're not even that efficient anymore as they claim to be with the 95 percent, which is basically the, that that was the case seven months ago, but it's not the case today. So There is no need to to vaccinate young young people or active people or people without comorbidities. There is a vaccine that is basically dropping towards zero concerning efficiency. So what the hell are we doing? I'm not sure. but
0: Yeah, maybe since you know about virology, maybe you could explain a bit with your background, like what's normally the procedure with developing a vaccine and what makes these vaccines different than other vaccines? Because it's a different way of giving a vaccine, as I in, comprehend.
1: In short, it takes about five to seven years to develop a vaccine properly. We're going through phase one, phase two, phase three trials. Okay. Now they pushed, uh, they pushed it through in, in less than a year, which is quite remarkable. Is it possible theoretically... I think, yes, it is possible to push it forward like that on a, on a short amount of time. But the thing is, and that's what we're seeing today, you still don't have any outlook on mid- and long-term effects. And that is something you have to take into account as well. Um, and that's a concern of some scientists now, that they try to build a vaccine as well for SARS, MERS, and RSV, which are basically, genomically, the same uh, genetic structures as SARS-CoV-2 now. That didn't even reach vaccine production because in phase three, they all saw a lot of complications rising. And we have the same genetic structure in SARS-CoV-2, but basically the phase three is still running now because we, we still have to wait for the first results to confirm mid- and long-term effects. So
0: this is basically a huge experiment that we're facing. Can you explain me this, because I like today's questions, and I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but I'm more like a truth detective, and some things is like, hmm, how come Pfizer, Moderna, AstraZeneca, Sputnik, all at the same time develop like a vaccine and find a solution? Are they just sharing the solution? Because often that doesn't happen with companies. It's like, yeah, it's our patent and we don't sell it. So how come suddenly it's like, will there be a vaccine? Will there be a vaccine? And then suddenly, oh, we all have a vaccine in like a period of like, you know, a couple of weeks, a couple of months. That raises questions for me. Like how, I mean, nine months is a record tempo to develop a vaccine, but then suddenly all the people just finding a solution is it just like be the quickest be the fastest or whatever because that also is weird to me
1: i I had the same questions and i didn't have answers until last week that uh, some leaked documents from the ema european medical uh, agency which has to approve the vaccines there were some leaked documents found on the internet or published or somebody at ema was sick of it and just threw them on the net but anyway it basically stated that billions of dollars were paid from from the eu and from the us to all the pharmaceutical companies already 6 months ago to give priority to the vaccine so i can imagine these these companies having gained a lot of money before even producing something mm-hmm. basically Said, okay, let's give this a priority. So I can imagine that 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 was the reason that or the impulse that started the whole production everywhere and research everywhere.
0: But if research was that easy, like I'm just going to throw money at Sam and then we'll have a solution when it comes to like human beings and the DNA, that, it's not so easy. Like just throw like, enough money at it and we have a solution. No, but it's like that, that's like that's
1: like running a running a 100 meters at the Olympic Games. You know, if if they tell me that I get a Porsche when I reach the finish line at uh, uh, being one of the first three, mm-hmm. well, I'll run like hell. And that's what happened, I think. So everybody just put themselves in fifth gear and, and started uh, working upon uh, on a vaccine. So I think that's quite a reasonable explanation. But the thing is, they wanted to be first. And if you want to be first, you have to take some, you know, mm-hmm. you have to cut corners. If you don't cut corners, you won't get there first. And the first one on the market, it will be the one that gains the most money. So I think Pfizer was happy to be the first one to be able to release its vaccine through the world.
0: It's It's almost like the politicians say like, yeah, we just want a vaccine. Well, I don't care if it works a little or it doesn't work. We just want to have it so we can, you know, use it. And that's another question that I want to ask, because I think common sense and putting things into context is sometimes missing. When was this lockdown being enforced in April. When is the season of infectious diseases, respiratory illnesses, the influenza season? Mostly between maybe earliest mid-October until like March. What's the same thing happening right now? They roll out these vaccines on a massive scale just in the season when gradually those numbers will be going down by default. And what happens also at the same time, you have the amplification rate of the PCR test which was insanely high because basically PCR test, it kind of zooms in. It's like, I have a clip of Carrie Mullis. And Carrie Mullis is being asked in the clip, it's Carrie Mullis. It's the inventor of the PCR test who literally says like, what is wrong with the PCR test? He says, there's nothing wrong with the PCR test, but the results of the PCR test can be misused. Because in a way, when you zoom in big enough, you almost get in touch with the Buddhist notion that everything is interconnected. And when you zoom in big enough, you can find whatever you want. So when this amplification rate is being set so high, you can always find something. Coronavirus is a rhinovirus, one of the most prevalent viruses in the human body. Since the sixties, we already have it. So when you reduce the amplification rate, of course the infections are going down. When you implement it, when the flu season and respiratory illnesses are going down, of course the deaths are going down. But what do I imagine that they do, see the vaccines are working, see the lockdown is working, not having the contextual influence.
1: Well, there's, a, there's a self-fulfilling prophecy I was talking about, you know. They've they started vaccinating in end of December, beginning January, all over the world. Some countries left behind, like Belgium, as usual. But anyway, they started vaccinating. And indeed, like you say, there are climatological studies now that also see a very clear uh, correlation between temperature Mm -hmm. and COVID-19. The virus is the most virulent at in between zero and 10 degrees Celsius. Mm -hmm. Once it passes the barrier of 10 degrees Celsius, it starts diminishing its virulence, which basically ends up with what you you are saying, or that's a conclusion, as soon as we hit summer or pre-summer period, Everything drops down dramatically like we saw last year. So what can they say now? Okay, the vaccines are working because we started in December. Now everybody's vaccinated. And look at the summary. It'll be mm-hmm. perfect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's bull, of, of course, because by the end of the year, we will see rises again. And mm-hmm. then we come to the second part of your statement, the PCR test. Indeed, we see that I calculated the false positive positivity rate for Belgium, which is about 34%. So if you use a test like this, you will always get aggravated figures that you can use to build up models. And everything is projected in biostatical models. So if you use a PCR test, it's always in favor of getting very, very dangerous looking biostatistical analysis. You know, if you look at the curves, you think now we're going to die in the next six months. Mm -hmm. So all these projections are basically a load of crap, to say it bluntly. Because if you start with wrong data, the only and, and they're blown up from the beginning, the end result will be even more blown up. So yeah, you, can you uh, imagine a
0: predictor test to check if you're pregnant and like 35% of the cases, it's like wrong, no, 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 you're pregnant, but no, I'm not pregnant. It's nine months past and I still don't have a baby. No, no, no. The test said you were pregnant.
1: Yes, indeed. And then nine months in lockdown because you're pregnant. Yeah. So that's basically the 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 whole story behind this, you know. There is the the, the way they have also, the narrative had changed There's something also very, very interesting, because by the end of August, the, until the end of August, 2020, everybody was talking about, oh, people are dying. This is the death toll. This is the mortality rate. And suddenly in September, the narrative changed. And they said they suddenly started talking about susceptibility and contaminations and infections, but they weren't. they weren't talking about mortality rates anymore. So there the narrative changed and suddenly they had to find a new story. It seems like they had to find a new story to keep the ball rolling. So because, like you said, end of August, the mortality rate was low because we yeah. came from a, season, a warm, hot season in the summertime. So there, were, there weren't there were any more people dead anymore. So they started to aggravate the figures by saying, OK, let's switch our view towards infections now.
0: Yeah, and I saw that they were, because at the site, they did a presentation in August that they did a lot more tests, so they're going to get a lot more cases. And we also haven't talked about the fact that is it it that because of COVID or is it that with COVID and they put everything like on COVID. People still think, no, that's not the case. There are so many stories of people, they had a heart attack or cancer or you know muscle atrophy and then at the end of their life, they die with COVID. Yeah, but when you look at the length of time, like all the underlying illnesses, 3.8 on average on the CDC site, then you really got to ask yourself the question like, yeah, is it really fair to just put by COVID on it when there's a lot of underlying factors?
1: That's another thing, of course. Eh? The the, the, this, the figures aren't only blown up, blown up by the PCR test, but also by the, by the, the in, like you said, the death certificates coming from hospitals. A colleague of mine who is a virologist in the Brussels area working at a, at a French-speaking university did a test in his university hospitals. And he looked at the... the um, uh, the people coming in on uh, intensive uh, on emergency, and when they reached the A and a- E department, they came in with heart complaints, complaints of the kidneys, kidney uh, re- renal failure, uh, all kinds of pathologies. And of course, when you enter an hospital emergency room nowadays, they immediately take a PCR test. So, from all the people that were secondary mm-hmm. being tested as a positive, they were transferred. Whatever the pathology was, even a broken leg, they were transferred to the COVID department as soon as they tested positive. But they didn't have any symptoms of of COVID. They came in with renal failure, heart problems, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. So two-thirds, 66% of the people who went to the COVID departments or the intensive care units for COVID were people that shouldn't have even belong on these intensive care rooms. And what happened was when they died from their basically mm-hmm. underlying pathology, which way, which entered them into coming to the hospital, then they were stated as a COVID death and not as a renal failure or a heart attack
0: or whatever. That is completely unethical, to put it a bit 66%, blunt. 66%, 66%.
1: That's, that's, a, that's a case study from uh, Brussels. Then we have in Hasselt, we had the same. We had a, at a, at a hospital in Hasselt uh, one of the immunologists there said, I want to do autopsies on the people that were so-called mm-hmm. uh, deceased based on a COVID diagnosis. 28% of the people that they did a autopsy didn't uh, have a, have a COVID-19 as that. Uh, they died for total different reasons than COVID. But we have 28% in household. We have 66% in Okay, those are two case studies, but basically it says it says it all. All these figures are blown up from the beginning. We have a PCR test, which is blown up. And on the other hand, you have other figures that are doubtably, undoubtedly false or inaccurate. The, these are the figures they use to run statistical models.
0: Do you know if the hospitals get an extra uh, incentive to put like COVID or not?
1: I'm aware of that, and it's true, but the thing is, the reasoning behind this or the, uh, the political reasoning behind this is as you as you c- cannot have you can't keep your hospital running because you have to close down wards
0: mm-hmm. so yeah yeah, yeah that's to- what i was thinking because people think like oh my god these hospitals are making so much money no they don't only a certain section of the hospital yeah, and dedicated, and it's dedicated to COVID. A compensation
1: yeah. for all the normal procedures that have to be cancelled or pushed back in time So I don't think that's necessarily uh, an incentive for hospitals to uh, really push their COVID departments towards a full COVID department. The thing is, and this is quite interesting, something people never realize is the fact that the fear-based paradigm in the last year has created a very societal pressure. And I talked to several yeah. doctors, and a few of them were um, intensive care doctors. And they said, We have people coming in here who have some kind of complaints like symptoms for COVID, and they've been tested positive and they have some fever, but they are so scared that they w- want to be admitted themselves. And what can we do as, as emergency doctors? We cannot refuse them because if we do, we'll end up in the press as a hospital refusing COVID patients. So this is also a part of the story. I have a few GPs who told me that they had a few patients who were tested positive for COVID, and they had some light symptoms in which the GP said to them, go home for a week, you know, just have a good rest, and this will pass, you know, you're young, you don't have comorbidities, nothing will happen to you just go home people were so scared they transferred themselves to the hospital and said please put me on a covid department because i have a, i'm a positive covid patient and i have a few symptoms so people were basically going to hospital themselves as well so this kept the ball rolling as well you know you saw all these figures of people entering uh, the uh, the intensive care units But people on intensive care, and there's also a perspective problem we have there. A lot of people, since looking at the the, the images from China in the beginning, where people dropped that on Mm -hmm. the street, and the same thing with Lombardy in Italy, where people were put on on their bellies, intubated with Mm -hmm. uh, forced ventilation. This is what people see nowadays as being admitted to an IC unit, which is incorrect because only 5% of the people are getting uh, forced ventilation 95 percent of the of the people on IC departments are just laying there being monitored about 24 hours a day that's that's the use of an intensive care getting monitoring for 24 hours but those people aren't ventilated they're just there let's say on average seven to eight days and then they can go home but when they broadcast it on television it's like look there are 3,000 people more in the intensive care department. So everybody thinks that those 3,000 people are lying flat on their bellies with a, with a tube in the mouth, which is incorrect. So also the, the perspective was created or the, the view was created that everybody on IC was dying, which isn't true either. So we have a fear-based paradigm being launched, having been launched in the beginning of the, of the crisis, and it just
0: continues. Something I want to clear up, and it's also another thing that I think is especially strange. What about asymptomatic spread? What about the effectiveness of masks? You already talked about the effectiveness of lockdown. So you have these experts on TV, they've been in this industry for such a long time. Most of them, they publicly admitted in the beginning Fauci, the person in Belgium, the person in Holland, masks are of no use, especially in outdoor air, etc. You had articles in July, asymptomatic spread is very rare. I think I had a study in Wuhan that it's like extremely rare. And even those who had symptoms that they didn't spread the virus was like extremely low. So no, what do you know about the effectiveness of masks and the asymptomatic spread of COVID?
1: First of all, uh, as you said in the beginning, nobody uh, enforced uh, face masks because there is no proof it's working. Then what I said earlier, in the, if you look at the, the end of the first wave, some geopolitical measures started to in, being enforced, I think, and then suddenly everybody changed paradigm. WHO suddenly said, eh, wear, wear face, face masks. So all the experts in all the countries said, okay, let's look at the WHO because if we, were, we are wrong, we'll be decapitated. So let's say they, they also pushed their responsibility towards the WHO. And so suddenly everybody started launching the narrative of a, of, a, of a face mask. Face masks, I think that the experts were honest in the beginning of the crisis. As mm-hmm. they said, it doesn't, it doesn't work. And a few months ago, there was a study published in the Annals of Internal Medicine by a group of Danish scientists. Then they basically proved the same thing, that it's basically useless wearing face masks. The only way it could contribute in withholding some spread is the fact that if you're ill, that also means you're symptomatic. Mm-hmm. And if you're symptomatic, you're able to transfer or transmit the disease. So that's the only, that was that was the final conclusion. If you walk outside, you're outdoors and you're feeling sick and you've got symptoms, if you then wear a mask, you might protect some people
0: around you in open air. And most same people in the past would have just stayed home. That's common sense. And, and That's
1: common sense. So basically, if you put it all together, it's useless. If you use it indoors, a face mask, we know that the aerosols can remain up to 30 minutes to two hours in the air. So if you're in a confined space, mm-hmm. sitting there together on a social distance of 1.5 meters your air will still float around even if you're wearing a face mask. It's not hermetically closed, you know. Mm -hmm. You have to breathe and your air will, the exhaled air will also travel around in in the not so ventilated area. So a half hour later, the person sitting one and a half meter away from you still has to inspire as well, might inspire the wave of aerosol and get infected. So indoors, it's of no use and outdoors, it's of no use either, except when you're sick. And if and we have sick.
0: data about it, we have stats where you can look at mandatory masks and it has, in almost every country, when you look at the data, it has no effect on a drop in the infections. Take into account, of course, the amount of tests. I always want to take, look at things contextual. So it doesn't have any effect. And instead of psychological effect, instead of a sign that there's a, illness going around and like a fear society because i honestly think if people wouldn't be wearing the mask and it would be a sunny day and they would be walking outside they would still use common sense if they're like ill or so symptoms stay at home but they wouldn't be so fearful they wouldn't be so afraid they would question the narrative more because it would be less symbolized through the mask
1: true yeah you you can look at it from a psychological perspective eh? using the face mask to indeed put forward a psychological warfare towards people to keep the narrative going yes
0: because in a symbolic way, that's what they did with you. You have to put on a mask, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. say an opinion that is like an actor perform well, removing your voice, removing your mouth, like they try to silence you in the university. So yeah. in a way, it's also symbolic. It's
1: in sub- a symbolic way to to end communication and to end any kind of feeling because let's say uh, the non nonverbal way of treating people, you know, having face facial expressions. It's so important and it basically kills society if you take away all these kind of emotions. And that's what they're trying to do, I guess. Uh, I don't know.
0: If yeah, you and on to- social media, it becomes more and more a kind of echo chamber where you always see one narrative that they're trying to push. And the deepest conversation I think now in Belgium, you have in the backyard between neighbors because there's no organic way of communicating like, hey… Uh-huh. Do you know someone who died? They know like zero, one, or two people. And when people get together, it's like, yeah, it actually seems like they're making it worse than it is. Because in my reality, for a year, it's actually much less worse than it presented in the media. So if people organically get together because they prohibit like assemblies and protests, that's also a way to show a different perspective, to open up the debate. But that organic way of connection and talking and seeing different perspectives is also being silenced. Yes,
1: indeed. Yeah, I, indeed. And it will have a lot of psychological consequences as well, and certainly within children.
0: That's what I worry about, because for a way, young people are like sponges. And what you said as the norm becomes the default. So in a way, these young children are shown a future of humanity, a way of living that becomes the norm. Mm-hmm. get them while they're young show them a model of society you would love to push and when that becomes the norm like they don't know any better so we can still debate we can see things differently but if that's the way how we want to organize society raise our young children like that for a year i think it's very disheartening that those playfulness connection hanging out with friends your adolescents, like dating you know finding your identity there must be a lot of complexes and a lot of trauma within these children like for a year yesterday i was in uh in the city with my daughter, she's 17.
1: And after three quarters of an hour, she totally crashed. My son Mm -hmm. said to me, look at her, what's happening. And she was totally pale. So I talked to her and I said, what's going on? And she said, she she literally said, I'm feeling sick and I have difficulties just being here. Mm -hmm. So she's basically developing agoraphobia. You know, she's so used now of, being confined all the time, that if she goes out, she feels totally uncomfortable. And she's 17, you know, she's been missing her friends. She can't develop as a normal human being. At 17, you should be going out, you should be able to discover. And this is, it really hits her, you know. It was, I was, I said to her, she was basically hyperventilating. So I didn't have any option but putting her in the car and drive home again. So yesterday, that's, coincidence i was i was looking into the data mental health data in youngsters studies published peer reviewed and there i didn't know there were so much already on covid-19 so it basically comes like 50% of adolescents now already experience anxiety depression post traumatic stress syndrome and there's a uh, globally seen in systematic review it's been seen that 38 there's a 38% rise in suicide attempts amongst youngsters and if you look at the youngest population children between 0 and 10 you see that they're uh, developing uh, different neural pathways already in their brains towards facial expressions mimicking due to the fact that they don't even recognize people's faces anymore because they wear face masks. So they don't see nonverbal expressions anymore. So they are getting difficulties in reading people's faces. They can't see the difference anymore. The this very small children between zero and three can't even recognize someone who's smiling and seeing it as something to be happy about. If somebody looks bad at them, or angry, they can't see what it means. They they lost any form of nonverbal communication. So what will if you know that this, the the neurological system in the brain is so intertwined, and sets between the three and, and the age three and ten, the neural neural pathways that are formed then at that age are the basis on which the rest of your neurological psychological development will continue for the rest of your life. So what we will be seeing in the next 10 to 20 years, we will still be facing psychological disorders coming back from 2020, 2021.
0: Yeah, because what often do we notice in psychological issues like not feeling at home, not feeling connected, not feeling part of the tribe? And when you see no support, no people to take care of you, you feel like you don't belong. Mm -hmm. You haven't developed your identity. That's a lot of origins of a lot of traumas and issues and mental disorders, and that's what purposely being done now to children who are. I looked at the CDC data. Children between five to seventeen years old are seven thousand eight hundred times less likely to die than people above eighty-five.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: How do you deal with that as a dad? It's difficult. That's the reason why I'm fighting
1: since a year. I. It's getting so difficult for me to to look at my kids and see what's happening. This is I keep fighting with with scientific arguments, with scientific articles, with peer-reviewed articles. I'm trying to push forward all the scientific data just to keep proving the governments that they're taking the total wrong course here. So, what, what's the reason? what What are what are we trying to regain here with this? Kind of approach. Now they're currently talking about starting vaccinating people between or youngsters between zero and eighteen as well.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Why? Their mortality mortality rate under 10 is 0.001%. Under 25, the mortality rate is 0.002%. So why would we indulge people or those youngsters and kids that died were also people uh, youngsters yeah. and kids that had underlying diseases so what are we trying to do here we know that youngsters kids children in general don't develop symptoms why would we need to vaccinate them what's the what's the use with a vaccine that is even isn't even efficient anymore why are we focusing on children knowing that the current Trials didn't even test the vaccines on minus 18 years years old. You know, what are we trying to prove here? I'm not sure. I think the bottom line of this is where do we as humanity want to progress to? Which kind of society do we want? Are we willing to give up our lives for a virus like we have tens of others similarly in the air every day? Are we willing to 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 live in a kind of Michael Jackson way of living? Everybody in his own oxygen uh, tank. I don't know. Yeah,
0: that's the thing that I that worries me. When you look at the surveillance state in China, the social credit system. Like, imagine if if this is the way how you want to be lived in a dystopian society. Cameras everywhere. Face recognition everywhere. You can't enter social spaces and tell you like safe and clean. A very start society. You have to live with masks. You have to live online. You have to distance from people. And then you have to explain to those generations who don't know any better. Like, why did you do this? Why did society have to change and just drinking a beer, hanging out, having fun, traveling, living the life, hugging, connecting? Oh, we did that for the virus that had a mortality rate of 0.23% or below 70, 0.05%. How does this condone changing society completely and destroying so many essential things in life that makes us feel fulfilled that's also the thing that hurts me oh you're a psychopath because you don't want to save lives but i have a long-term vision about the future of humanity your children future generations like what kind of society do you want to live it's only now and temporary then it's solved that's what they also said after two weeks it's just two weeks well this becomes the new normal you think that this is temporary this is just like moving the goalposts that it becomes a way of living and for me, this is not a tenable society and a way of living and definitely not for the future of humanity and the children.
1: No, no, no. We have to get out of here. And people ask me, how do we do it? Because you are silenced in the, on an academic level. All of you are silenced. And I said, the last lecture I gave, I said, it's up to you. You are society. The force of the number.
0: Use it. The it's biggest just way how people give their power away is thinking that they don't have any.
1: Yes, that's that's strange indeed. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Because we have the power. People have the power. We outnumber all politicians. We outnumber all armies. We're with 7.8 billion on this planet. Only a very, 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 very small minority, 0.0001%, are the people in power. So who has the force? And who is able to change this current
0: situation? Because I think people don't realize how serious the situation is. This is a situation that in the West we haven't witnessed in 80 years. The evening clock, the locking down of freedoms, of assembly, freedom of your body maybe even, the propaganda, the ideology, the silencing of speech. These are war circumstances. These are circumstances we witnessed in Stalin's Russia and Nazi Germany and other dictatorial regimes. I think people don't realize, maybe it's that false social activism online and people say, I like and I share, that's enough. But it really takes going to the streets like Martin Luther King that standing up. You know, yeah. we, you shall not pass. We shall overcome, like, you know, like really the, deep the I movements.
1: I think the reason that this isn't working nowadays is due to the technical progression we made. We were so used the last few years of living online and having uh, only our mobile phones to look at. And we basically unlearned how to be uh, activists. We basically have been blurred by modern technology. And the activistic approach we need nowadays, I see it everywhere. You, You can see calls on mobile phones like or invites for protests basically nobody shows up so i think the the technological progression has made us vulnerable fear-based people who are
0: lacking every form of activism or and you know what also strange normally the young people the hippies they were anti-authority and were like standing up now it's people our age i don't know you're in 30s or 40s Mm -hmm they're standing up for like old values and for freedoms. Normally it's the young generation who like yeah. standing up, but now it's the young people who like say like, no, 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 no. Stay quiet and, and you're ruining lives and et cetera. like It's, a, it's an it inversion is, of what used to happen. Also in universities, they were the rebels. They were anti-authority. Indeed. Nothing's happening anymore
1: from where you expect uh, the, the, the force to come from. It's true. And it, we also see it, a very paradoxical shift between the left and the right in the politi- politician. Uh, in, if you look at that from a mm-hmm. politician, political view because people who used to be left-wing were the people that were mm-hmm. progressives but also questioning the government all the time mm-hmm. and what I see now in my own inner circle that all the left-wing people and I consider myself one of them because I'm, mm-hmm. a, I'm a leftist mm-hmm.
0: but I don't see them arguing. Leftist as socialist, right? Left is not as communist, right? Because yeah. sometimes American people will listen, he's a communist, like more a socialist mm-hmm. probably I think, right?
1: Yeah, indeed, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. people in the US, they, they, we still have to define for them what the difference is between a communist and a socialist. For them, it's all the same, but it's a totally different ballgame. Anyway, but you see that the people use, used journalists as well. You know, the academic world was left leftist as well. And those people were questioning governments on a daily basis, scrutinizing everything they did. Nowadays, those people are the first to call, yeah, you don't, you're not working we're wearing a face mask, why not? You should follow the guidelines. And now I see the right wings, and you saw it in the US as well with Trump, who said, no, bugger off, leave us alone, give us our freedom back. Which is very, very strange. I can't put my head around it because it's a very strange thing to watch now, you know.
0: Which also is strange, and that bleeds my journalistic heart, and I'm going to be honest to the Belgian people who are listening, there is no right-wing media in Belgium. There is no mainstream right-wing media. They're all left-wing. Even the parties who call themselves liberals, standing up for entrepreneurs, they're left-wing. Maybe left centrist or whatever. Like, Where are the right-wing conservative, real conservative like old-school parties or classic liberal? There are none. It's an echo chamber, what is allowed to be said. And if it would be the other way around, I would be saying the same thing. I just love open debate. But it's a very narrow discourse, which is becoming increasingly more narrow. And I witness this in in the universities and also in the in the journal journalism. The left became more and more extreme, more and more identity politics. So I didn't become more extreme. I became more extreme for those left wing people who moved up more to the left or those people within the left who are the loudest voices and and, and make it seem like the left totally moved more to the extremes, you know. So in the past, when you were like just a conservative, now you're almost like a right-wing Nazi, you know? Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. Indeed. This is a very strange shift we're seeing currently. Yeah.
0: And I don't know where it came from. Maybe you can talk a bit about the social credit system or your worries that you have about what's happening in like China. Because maybe you could wake up some people about people can look look it up themselves online. Like what's happening in China and what kind of societal model they are creating there.
1: Well, I'm a bit afraid we're 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 heading off to the same situation here with the green pass they're trying to implement in the in the EU, and but we also also see now already in Israel. I was totally, the vaccination
0: passport. You're talking yeah, about.
1: Right? I, I was totally shocked last week that uh, that some pictures sh- showed up from a beach in Tel Aviv where you saw beach chairs mentioning mm-hmm. uh, vaccinated people only, and I was like, this is the country mm-hmm. that has faced so much problems with segregation. Mm-hmm. And basically, are now being put forward internationally as the model of segregation. Mm-hmm. And I was like, how can you deal with this as a country with, with, with a history like Israel? I can't comprehend it at all. And the same thing we see happening now here in the, in the EU. They want to enforce a green pass, which is basically a vaccination passport. Also questioning why. Why do we need this kind of vaccine vaccination mm. passport? First of all, the vaccines only create antibodies for about four to six months. So what, what will this mean for us? Will we have to go back every six months to get a new vaccine? Two, if we both have, you and I, have a vaccine passport, and we go and your vaccine has been put in your ass three months ago, and mine has just been put in my mm. arm, and in two months' time, we go to a festival together. We will both be allowed, but in your case, your antibodies probably are trenched back to zero. But mm-hmm. you'll be allowed to get to enter, and me too, because I was recently vaccinated. So how will you start controlling this whole system?
0: Yeah, or you go with your party to a festival and then suddenly I'm positive and you you were not positive and and you were my girlfriend and you could go to the festival but then I was like positive and then I denied you from the festival. So I was like, oh my God, you know, we planned this trip for like two months to Italy and everything was clear until you entered the museum and suddenly you got a negative and now our whole vacation is ruined. We have to rebook the hotels. We have to stay in quarantine. I mean, how is this tenable and is this a society you want to live in? Like how hectic will traveling be like, I hope I'm not positive. Almost like, with the Jewish people, I hope that they don't discover I'm a, I'm a Jewish person, you know, like so much fear, so much lack of freedom, so much lack of spontaneity.
1: Yeah, indeed. And and, and that indirectly pushes people towards a vaccine. So it also mm-hmm. limits your, your your personal freedom of choice to go with for a vaccine or to refuse a vaccine. Yeah, Indirectly, they're pushing you towards a vaccine. And why? We already know that the system behind it is is, flaw, is a total flaw. Knowing that the efficiency of the vaccines is basically dropping towards below 40%, 30%, 20%. What's the efficiency of a vaccination passport? The only thing I can imagine is that this is a pathway for governments now to use a Green Pass as a new kind of identity card. Which in, on the long term might be used to also use your social economic status and put it on the green pass, and your religious status and put it on the green pass, and all your. If you get a fine, it will be put on the green pass, and if then you can, you're entering the social credit system like in China, if you get three fines of uh, speed ticketing, uh, speed limit ticketing, whatever you will refuse you to to go and travel again you know so i think people have to be aware that
0: everything they take away from you in human rights mm-hmm. you hardly ever get back this is the hypothesis that i also have because i have a lot of questions also in this podcast and people can you know have their own perspective but i think personally that is a true detective and the bigger things that going on right here and it's a bold claim but that is what i think it is this crisis is being used for governments to be able to track data and limit your freedoms, and this will be the first thing that they do, but then in the future, you might have to send more data to get your universal basic income, to know how much you travel, to know much how you meat you consume, to, to know how much you pollute, and with more and more data becomes more and more predictive control. And they can manipulate your perception and they can limit certain freedoms according to certain benefits of people who benefit from it. So this is, for me, the dawn of transhumanism, more and more technology to track and trace people. And with that data, they can even have more control of the future of humanity. So that is how I look at it, that this is the first step, there's the passport, but then maybe it's a, it's a passport with a chip. And then maybe later I can put a date on it. It's a chip in your body that sends biometrics to them. How much savings do you have? How much do you move? How healthy are you? Who do you associate with? Are you racist? Are you sexist? Did you say anything online that offends? More and more data that is being tracked and more and more limited way of free expression and deciding things for yourself and self-determination.
1: I don't know what what the lookout will be in the near near future or the far future. The only thing I know is that I still believe we are able to weigh upon politics Mm -hmm. and we have to do it now. And I see some kind of positive changes. I also hear voices now within politics who are questioning the fact if this is the way forward. Also questioning if we can really enforce vaccines you know this all already questioning this is I think a progress it's clear it's it's a violation of human rights to begin with it's a violation of the nuremberg code or the nuremberg mm-hmm. declaration that uh, that we implemented also from a scientific point of view that you cannot enforce any treatment to a human being without its informed consent. And I hear voices raising now that we have to take these human rights into account. And I also see it on a European level. The last uh, document I saw passing by last week was also a proposal from the European Commission towards the European Council, in which the European Commission also stated we, we, we have to abandon the enforcement of vaccination. It has to be a vaccination by free will. It's not yet adopted by the council, but I hope it's already a a signal towards the European Council from the European Commission or European Parliament. I think it's a good signal. And I think a lot of lawyers internationally are currently also trying to enforce, they're also putting forward some juridical arguments against what is happening today. So I think there are some things moving in a positive way as well. So I think, like you said, your reasoning, I'm, I'm quite aware that a lot of people are starting to think like you are and, f- and following, the, indeed, this potential mm-hmm. pathway towards a social credit system. And I think the, the, the fact that people are starting to realize this might be the counter moment. And as I said before, I think it's now f- for everyone who is critical, critical of mind, who is worried about where society is progressing to. It's now to stand up. It's now time to raise your voice. It's time to put your fist between the uh, through the door and and say it stops here. You know?
0: Yeah, because else you could end up with this medical apartheid, like what's going on in like Israel, and everybody has to say like no more, like not not further than here, and everybody has to draw the line here. But you know, the vaccination, if you do it or not, that's also a choice that you make. Like, yeah. Because most people who take the vaccine say like, it's not to protect people. It's because I want to see my band again, because I want to go back to normal. So even their reasoning is just like the freedom has been taken away and this will give it back. But when enough people say no and don't do it, you still have the majority and yet still have a lot of power to go against it because otherwise, and I know you also ask critical questions about it, you will have a divided society where you also wonder like, shouldn't I take the vaccine because I have a... Anti-vaccine standpoint, but I'm not being given so many means to get together, to gather, to you know, create momentum. Yeah, that maybe true. it's best I wouldn't do it, but it's it's in the end something you consider. Maybe I should take the vaccine because at least then I have more of a platform to go against the vaccines because I'm being excluded from the mainstream discourse right now. Indeed. that's a philosophical question. If if you don't take the vaccine, and we would get involved in some kind of
1: segregation or a Mad Max-like way of living in which people who have vaccinated are pushed together in a city and all the rest uh, has to live without any means of basic uh, needs that are being fulfilled, then the question indeed rises. You know, what are you going to do? Put yourself aside of the of the of, uh, of society and not being able to enforce anything anymore? Or will you get vaccinated just to keep in the system, to keep mm-hmm. yourself in the system and keep yourself going and trying to enf- change the system from within?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That's a good philosophical question.
0: Yeah, um, that's a difficult question. Also, what would you do
1: if uh, shit hits the fan and we really see that we're working, we're progressing towards this kind of technological system and of social credits? I think the only way to keep fighting the system is from within. You don't. Mm-hmm. Ha- I talked with Professor Matthias Schmidt, who we mm-hmm. also talked uh, yeah. with, and we had a discussion about it. And he he's totally willing to abort the system and live somewhere on a deserted place and, and, and do some permaculture and and he said I give up everything. I said yeah okay that's good but wh- how are you going to fight the system? Mm-hmm. Somebody has to mm-hmm. keep the ball rolling and, and keep the mm-hmm. fire going within the system. And so We had a discussion about it so I don't think he's he, well, I think he's more convinced of the fact that he will he will leave uh, everything behind and, and and move into a into a, three, a tree and do some uh, uh, permaculture. But I'm not so convinced that that's the best method to follow.
0: Yeah, because yeah. in the end you also gotta create the means to be able to do that. I and mean, in the future, when you don't have enough to build that, you know, then you could be you know living in freedom in a cave with 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 some begging and some fruits of nature, but not a lot of enjoyment and not a lot of things you could do and you couldn't travel i haven't mm-hmm. seen my family for more than a year missed a lot of important events which is also usually neglected the uh, important events that's the funeral the wedding you know the celebration together the healing of the family wounds yeah what is that freedom then when you just live in a in a beggar state right almost right unless you can create a permaculture that's fine that, but on the other hand like living there knowing that you did something that violates your common sense violates your values go against Everything that you stand for and you did it, it also makes you feel like a coward and like a slave. So it's a, it's an important discussion to have and not easy to answer.
1: I think everyone of goodwill will try to find a way to fight the system. The only question is, how can you do it the most efficiently? And I think the most efficient way is to do it from, to fight from within the system. Otherwise, you cannot change the system. That's my personal view. but. I can understand Professor Matthias Schmidt's vision as well that he says I, I'm not, you know, I did my best and I'm going to live outside of the community. Well, yeah, it's a way of thinking, but I'm not sure that this will help. You know, every system collapses sooner or later. Even the highest technological system that we might engage ourselves in will collapse sooner or later. There is no perpetual motion in systems. You know, systems crash, go, come and go. That's also what Anna Arendt talks about in in her book on totalitarianism. Sooner or later, there is a a shift. I only hope it will be as soon as possible.
0: If people want to find out more about what you do, where can they find out more about the research, the perspectives, the activism that you do? Well, I'm on Facebook,
1: but that's about it. I'm not really on social media, so it's very difficult to find me or on LinkedIn. Where they can find me on my uh, by my name Sam Brocken. So if you want to connect on uh, LinkedIn, that might be the best option.
0: You said it's time to take a stance. It's time for people to speak up. What do you think is the most practical way for people now to stand up? How should they do it? How should they voice voice their discontent? Should they gather in protest? Should they start a movement? Like, what is the best way to? stand up right now
1: i think organ- get out of your lazy chair drop your mobile phone and get on the streets i don't want to create rules in but do it on a silent way keep it civilized demo on a democratic base just go out and show that you are not agreeing with what is happening today it doesn't cost a lot of effort you know it's just enough to walk just organize yourselves to walk to the, towards the same endpoint. And I think we can all organize this on a worldwide scale. I think even if I'm not mistaken on March 30 there is a, that date is being put forward on social media as a day for a worldwide march against the, this potential shift of society. So I think get out of your lazy chair, forget what you're doing. Keep it civilized, take something to drink with you, something to eat, and all march in the same direction. And we will outnumber politicians. We will outnumber police forces. We will outnumber anyone. Do it on a civilized way. Don't fight. Don't betray yourself. Just be human.
0: Well, Jan, I wish you all the best in your march through the institutions, as Gramsci talked about, but in a positive way to change it from the inside for your hopeful message and also to future generations and your daughter. And uh, it was an honor to have you on the podcast. Thanks much for sharing your opinion, man, and being so brave.
1: Thank you very much, Philippe, for having me. It was a pleasure. If you like this podcast don't forget to subscribe share and leave a comment and if you're a coach or consultant and you want to scale your online business or maximize your productivity check out the show notes to find out more about philip and his coaching programs rent over